I think a lot of people that have been eating a lot of refined food have interestingly been self-medicating. And when I say that, what I'm referring to is something that happens when we eat refined foods. When we eat refined foods, we actually cause a dampening of the stress response because those refined foods cause something in our body to be produced, which are called endogenous opioids. So we're medicating ourselves to feel calmer and to feel soothed by those foods. And we learn that over time. Welcome back to the Mindset Mastery Podcast. On the show today, I have nutritional neuroscientist, author, and speaker, Dr. Delia McCabe, to talk about how our brain health, stress resiliency, and psychological well-being can be directly impacted by the food we eat. Delia shifted her focus from conventional talking therapy after completing her master's in psychology. She discovered that what we eat directly impacts brain function. And until the brain is properly nourished, no amount of talking can support optimal cognitive functioning. Today, we're going to dive into her research into beating fatigue, brain fog, and burnout, and how you can take control of your brain health by taking control of your diet. Delia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you? I'm good, Rachel. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to chat to you. I'm very excited to talk all about nutrition and brain health. It's one of my favorite topics that we cover on the show. To start with, can you just tell me where your research began and then how it shifted more into the nutritional neuroscience? With pleasure, Rachel. It's interesting because I really wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I really wanted to help people talk themselves better. And I was looking at a bunch of school kids that were really smart. You know, these are the kind of children that parents and teachers just throw up their hands, you know, in despair and say, why won't you work at school? You know, you're so smart. So I was looking at at the group of these children and I was looking at the psychological variables that underpinned their underachievement. And destiny is a very funny thing because I had a little bit of extra space on one of the questionnaires that I developed. And I simply said to them, what's your favorite food? And the answer really changed my whole life because all the children in my experimental group, that's the kids who are really smart, but who were doing poorly, they all said they love junk food. And the children in my control group said exactly the opposite. And it's very seldom in research that you get such a clear distinction. So I was like, wow, I need to check this out. And I mean, look, I'm aging myself now, but that was 25 years ago. And I thought, look, I really need to find out, is there anything to do with what we eat, you know, and how our brain works? And I was very pregnant with my first child. So I thought, well, I'll take a little bit of a break. So I finished my master's. I handed it in. I got my degree. And I sat down to try and find out what the information was, where the knowledge was about this connection. And there was such a little bit of knowledge. I was trawling through journal articles and, you know, highlighting one sentence and trying to look for books and just maybe a paragraph in a book. And I became really frustrated. So I ended up tracking down the researchers who were investigating this all over the world. And I came to the conclusion that I couldn't really, in all honesty, be a talking therapist. So I really decided that I wanted to find out more about how people were fueling their brain because I figured you know, if you start at the foundation of something, you've got a better chance of building a solid structure. And that's really, in a nutshell, what happened. From that time on, I was talking to people, you know, doing my own independent research, figuring out what the connection was, teaching myself, because there was a little piece of information here and a little piece of information, and I was putting these things together. 
So it's really been a process of discovery for me personally. I mean, for example, when I discovered that 60% of the brain was made up of fat, I thought, ah, oh, you know, it'll take me a couple of days and I'll figure that out. And I can honestly tell you 25 years later, I'm still learning because it's such a complex area, not just nutrition, but of neuroscience, you know, what those fats do in the brain. So it's really been an adventure for me, but I'm happy I took it because I really just wanted to say to people, listen, what did you have for breakfast? Instead of what was your relationship like with your mother or your father or whatever, I was just on a different level of thinking. So that brings me to you and being here today. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's break a few of those different things down and we'll start with what you said about the brain being, was it 60% fat? So what, yeah. yeah, so what, what does that mean? And what does that mean for our diet and what we should be feeling our brain so that it works, it functions optimally? I love this question and I hate this question because the truth is that when I give a lecture on, like, on fats and oils, it's a three hour lecture. So I have to condense this into a couple of sentences. So the first thing is, as I said, the dry weight of the brain is 60% fat. And that's really important because we know that the brain is made up of billions of neurons and all of those neurons have connections with other neurons and they form this very, very sensitive and sophisticated network. What most people don't realize is that a very specific kind of fat needs to be present in the brain. So we can keep that 60% in mind. And of that 60%, between 20 and 25% needs to be made up of polyunsaturated fats. That's omega-3 and omega-6 fats. And those are fats that we have to get in our diet, which is why they're called essential, versus saturated fats and monounsaturated fats, which we can make from excess carbs. So polyunsaturated fats are really precious fats. We have to get them in our diet. We call them essential fatty acids. And the reason they are so important in the brain, Rachel, is because they are made up of a particular molecular structure that allows neurons to be very, very flexible and malleable, which is what we want the brain to be. We want the brain to very quickly respond to cues, both from inside, internally and externally, to be able to maximize and optimize our experience, whether that's learning, focus, concentration, memory, mood, whatever it is. We want the neurons to be very flexible. And with, that, with those kinds of fats, the omega-6 and the omega-3 fats, it allows the synapses and the myelin sheath and the rest of the, the neuronal membrane to be made up of the very specific fat that allows this flexibility. So when we look at the kinds of fat that most people are consuming today, we estimate that about 95% of the population is deficient in these kinds of fats because farmers don't like growing them and food manufacturers don't like using them in their food products because they go off. The only way to keep omega-6 fats stable is to put them through a whole lot of processing so that by the time they come out at the end of the processing, they've got trans fats, polymerized fats, and other fats in them. So you're getting a little bit of benefit with a whole lot of negativity. So most people are getting a whole lot of omega-6, but it's damaged, and they're getting very little omega-3 because, as I said, farmers don't like growing it, and it's very, very hard to keep it stable. It goes rancid very quickly. So that is the foundation of having a really healthy brain, making sure that the structure 
is optimized. And we do that by making sure the fats that we consume are the right kinds of fats. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, wow, 95% of people are deficient in those fats. That is a massive, massive number. So what are the kind of foods that we should be eating? And you said, yeah, some of these are, are damaged fats, but what are some things that we can really try to incorporate in our diet so we can restore some of those, those good fats? This is a great question because the first rule is avoid everything in plastic. If you see an oil in plastic, run away from it because it's not only damaged, but it's also leaching chemicals into the oil from the plastic. So that's the first rule. Just avoid any oil in plastic. The second rule is make sure that you get a combination of omega-6 and omega-3. And we can get them from seeds very easily. So any of your listeners can go into a good health store, buy themselves some of the seeds that I'm going to tell you about and make their own mixture in their own kitchen. And the ratio needs to be in favor of omega-3. So the ratio that I'm going to explain, people will understand that it's more in favor of omega-3 because the brain needs more of that. And those we can find easily in flax seeds. So flax, omega-3, omega-6 is sunflower, sesame, and pumpkin or pepita seeds. And the ratio needs to be two cups of flax to a third of a cup of each of the others. And you put that in a glass jar, mix it really well, leave it in a freezer, and every day take out three or four tablespoons of that, grind it up, and eat it straight away. Or stick it in your smoothie or put it on your salad, but don't store it once it's been ground up because those fats are really sensitive to light, heat, and oxygen damage. So that's the second thing to do. The third thing to do is to not eat any fried food because fried food contains damaged fats because whatever fat people use is mostly damaged, like the sunflower, canola, sesame seed oils. They've been damaged before they even get into your frying pan. And the second thing is that unfortunately, even if it's a good oil, a good fat, and then you fry it, the minute it turns brown or it starts changing shape, it then introduces toxic fats into your, into your body and obviously into your brain. So there are a few rules related to that, but it's really easy to cook your food without frying it. Sometimes people have to wean themselves or frying their food. And then I suggest they use a little bit of organic butter as a start or a little bit of organic coconut oil, and then slowly even wean themselves off that because ultimately even those saturated fats do get damaged from heat exposure. And of course, olive oil being a monounsaturated fat also gets damaged because it's got one carbon bond that the oxygen jumps into. So without getting too technical, those are just the rules to follow. And of course, never, ever, ever heat any omega-3 and omega-6 fats because they get damaged much more by light heat and oxygen. So that's a little summary, Rachel. Yeah, that's fantastic. What are some of the symptoms that we might feel if we're not getting these good fat and nutrients? Do we have physical symptoms or brain fog symptoms or what might we feel every day that some of us listening might even relate to right now because our brain is starved of these nutrients? One of the interesting places that you will definitely notice a deficiency is with your skin. And that's because the skin is very sensitive to essential fatty acid deficiency and by the time you don't have it on your skin, you really don't have it in the rest of your body either because it's kind of like the last place to show the deficiency. So that skin you know, cracked heels. 
skin that's very, very dry and needs a lot of moisturizer, wrinkles when you shouldn't be getting them, you know, when you're quite young and you find that your skin and your face is showing wrinkles really easily. Extreme sensitivity to the sun is another one. And then you also find people's hair that, you know, is, is, is very breaky and their nails crack very easily. Those are all physical signs of not having the right essential fats in our skin and in our epidermis and, you know, the elastin and collagen that the body produces. As far as the, the body goes inside, hormonal challenges are another issue because omega-6 is very important for keeping our hormones stable. Really having a problem handling stress is another issue because our adrenal glands also need essential fats to function optimally. People that have challenges with their heart, also a problem. And then lastly, the brain. So things like brain fog, things like an inability to focus and concentrate, which a lot of children experience, unfortunately, in today's world. And a lot of that can be laid at the door of not having the right fats, firstly for brain development at optimal windows of opportunity, you know, in cognitive development and also just day-to-day -day functioning and in, uh, feeling irritable, feeling cranky, feeling unable to, to modulate your mood. Those are all things related to essential fatty acid deficiency. Obviously, there are other things, but, you know, we're speaking from a foundational perspective now. The reason the brain, the heart, the adrenal glands and the reproductive organs feel a sense of this deficiency first is because they are our primary survival organs. And the rest of the body will take you know, next, next dibs on the essential fats. But if we don't have that for those four areas or, or systems, then we definitely will start feeling less than, less than great. And obviously our skin. So anybody that notices any of those symptoms, that's the first box to go and check. Do I have an essential fatty acid deficiency? Yeah. Talking about stress resiliency, is that directly related to what we're talking about now with giving the brain those kind of good fats or is that also a bigger picture there's more moving components to that there are more components to that but that's always where i start when i work with people i say look we need to look at your essential facts because unless your brain is made up of the right materials whatever we tell it to do and whatever we add it's not going to work optimally but yes there are other components because i think rachel a lot of people are not aware of the fact that stress is very expensive from a nutritional perspective and just to explain that when our body produces adrenaline, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. We actually have nutrients that are used to create adrenaline. And those nutrients are B vitamins, vitamin C, zinc, magnesium, all nutrients that are also used to create energy within our mitochondria. And those same nutrients are also used to create things like serotonin and melatonin and dopamine and acetylcholine, all the neurotransmitters that we need. But stress is a survival option. You know, you don't ever feel like a tiger is chasing you and thinking, oh, well, I'll lie down and have a little bit of a nap now. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So when you're very stressed, which most people have experienced in the last 18 plus months, what happens is that all of those nutrients that they're consuming go towards adrenaline synthesis because that's the primary survival goal. And then there's very little left over to make serotonin and then melatonin. And that's why you also feel exhausted. Because if you don't have enough nutrients to also make energy, you're absolutely exhausted from just having enough nutrients to make adrenaline. And it's also one of the reasons why people have really battled to sleep. Because when you lie down, if you don't have the nutrients within your body, 
your gut and your brain to make serotonin and then melatonin, what happens? You lie there and stare at the ceiling because you, your, your adrenal glands still believe that the tiger is chasing you because your nutrients are in that direction. So that's the role that nutrition plays. It makes all these different compounds, all these different hormones, all these different neurotransmitters from the food that we eat. And a lot of people think that if they swallow dietary supplements with bees in them or vitamin C or whatever, they can make up for a poor diet. And I have to disabuse them of that illusion because that is not possible. You need to eat an optimum diet and on top of that, supplement with nutrients that do have an evidence base, but you have to start with the diet. So that's kind of a long explanation to explain why stress is so expensive from a nutritional perspective and why so many people have felt exhausted you know, tired, but wired, unable to sleep. It's because of a lack of nutrients to do everything that they need to do in the body when we're super stressed. Yeah, that's a really great explanation. We talked about about fats and those nutrients that we need. What about the other food groups like carbs and protein? What kind of part do they play in our brain health and functioning at our best? Let's just tackle protein first. I think a lot of people are under the impression that protein can only be found from animal products. And that isn't true. We do get amino acids, which is what protein is made up of, from every single plant that we consume, just in different concentrations. So people don't have to eat animal products to get protein. However, if they do eat animal products to get protein, they need to really try and make sure that they're organic. Because if they're not organic, pesticides accumulate in fat. And we've just discussed how fat heavy the brain is. So that's the last place we want to accumulate pesticides. And pesticides also interfere with our endocrine system, with our hormones, because they were designed to interfere with the bug's hormonal system. So they damage us from a number of different perspectives. But if you're going to not eat animal products, you need to make sure that your diet is really, really excellent because you need to be able to get enough of the amino acids and vegetarian and vegan diets can be healthy if you're making sure that you're eating enough of for example legumes and whole grains and a lot of things like broccoli and sprouts and so on and that's that's kind of like another conversation but that gives somebody an idea that their diet needs to be really optimum and very likely have to also supplement with b12 because you don't get that in in plant food. People that eat a plant-based diet may also be deficient in zinc, and you also may be deficient if you're very stressed, even if you do eat animal products. And a lot of people are also deficient in iron, but you can be deficient in iron, even if you eat a lot of animal products. So it's not just that that will be the case, but the kind of iron that you find in animal products, specifically red meat now, is ferritin, and our body absorbs that Sorry, that's, that's a, a specific kind of iron that the body then absorbs and ferritin is produced. It's a long, complicated process, but somehow the body seems to absorb that iron from animal products more optimally than it does from plant products, which have a different kind of iron. So it's important to do blood tests if you do follow a vegan or vegetarian diet to make sure that you're not deficient in, in zinc and in iron, and you will need to supplement with B12. Because if you don't have enough B12, the myelin around the axon of the neuron will be compromised. And without enough zinc and enough iron, the brain also suffers significantly. So those those are the, the things related to protein. In relation to carbohydrates, they need to be unrefined carbohydrates, carbohydrates that preferably are colorful. 
not carbohydrates that you find in donuts, you know, which are very refined grain products, which are not good for us and raise our blood glucose very quickly and cause challenges with blood glucose in relation to brain functioning. So if carbohydrates can be as colorful as possible, if people tend to weight gain, then they need to ignore things like rice and white potatoes, but they can happily eat sweet potatoes, happily eat broccoli, things like cauliflower, lots of berries. More colorful the food, the better, because it also comes with antioxidants then. And then it also comes with good fiber, which keeps our gut healthy. And when our gut is healthy, there's a greater chance our brain will be healthy. So that's a lot. <laughs> People that follow, you know, keto diets and paleo diets and vegan and vegetarian, they, they're missing out on specific nutrients that the brain does need, although variations of those diets can be healthy. So I'm not slating them. However, when somebody avoids a whole food group, that's when we have a problem. And I'm not talking about wheat, for example. I'm talking about avoiding all carbs or avoiding, um, for example, paleo people may avoid specific foods that they think are now more related to a modern life. And that could be a challenge maybe for growing children. So there are different scenarios that people need to keep in mind. The only diet that has been extremely well-researched and has a lot of evidence to support it is the Mediterranean diet, which is made up of a wide variety of foods, very colorful foods, including olive oil. And that's the one that we researched the most in terms of physical health and cognitive health. So a, a diet that excludes a lot of food may not be the right solution for optimal brain functioning long term. So that was a bit of a summary, Rachel. Yeah, that's great. Now we're covering so many, so many things here. It's awesome. Is there a ratio talking about brain health specifically and not necessarily uh, muscle gain or weight loss or anything like that, but for brain health, is there a ratio of fats, proteins, and carbs that is optimal or is that just really up to each individual person? It's a good question. I don't think there's any research to support a kind of ratio, but I think if we go back to, let's just talk about the Mediterranean diet for a moment. That diet and also like from you know Okinawa and places where we've got very long-lived, very cognitively healthy populations, a lot of the food that they eat is plant-based. A wide variety comes from the plant kingdom, not from animal products. And so what it seems to be is that the protein, whatever it is, is not the main part of the meal which is contrary to what paleo believes, you know, that we lived on, on animals, which there is a whole argument about whether that was the case or not and whether it's healthy or not. So going back to the Mediterranean diet, primarily plants, and then on top of that, you have some animal products, but mostly plants and, you know, desserts and sweets as an add-on, not as, you know, snacks all the time and as treats, not as part of an ordinary day-to-day -day diet. So those are the principles that we can take away and say, okay, if we take that as a ratio, that's kind of like what we should be doing. And I've got a, an opt-in gift that I'll share the link for you that people can download if they want to. And at the, at the end of the opt-in, I've got um, a list of what I make sure my diet has in it. And I'll speak about the fats and I'll speak about carbs and protein and then spices and herbs and nuts and seeds and so on. Just to give people an idea, like a checklist, you know, this is what my diet should be made up of, because th that is based on 
what we now know from the evidence that is very clear. So it's not a clear ratio. And I think that's because, you know, children would need less. Someone that was very physically active may have more carbs than someone who wasn't as physically active just because they're burning up more energy. But it wouldn't just be pasta. It would be other carbs that are also, you know, that have fiber with them. And then if you were wanting to build muscle, then maybe you'd include a, a bit more protein in your diet. So I think everybody has to, we, we know that there's no one perfect diet for everybody, but we do know that some of the foundational principles do apply to everybody. Yeah, that's great. So talking about digestion and absorption of all these nutrients, say you're having this really well-balanced diet and you're ticking all the boxes, can you still have a problem with absorption and still be deficient in in some of these nutrients or is that something that can balance itself out and and heal itself if you start to stick to this healthy balanced diet it's a good question Rachel and we just have to go back to the foundation again if the challenge with the gut is because of not having the right bacteria in the right ratio then introducing a diet that's got a lot of good fiber in which actually also contains prebiotics, which is food for the good bacteria. If that is the case, and it's just a bacterial imbalance, then the person's gut health will definitely improve over time if they also become more stress resilient so that they handle stress more efficiently and also if they sleep better. And of course, obviously, with that comes exercise. However, if the person has a gut challenge because they've actually got a severe infection in the gut, so there's, there's a, a challenge where they really need medical assistance to help them get rid of that infection, and quite simple. But if that's the case, then they need to deal with that first, and then they can then start introducing the prebiotic foods and then also use probiotics with their diet. But generally what I recommend to people, if they don't suspect that's the case and they suspect they've just got something like irritable bowel syndrome where they alternate between you know, maybe constipation and diarrhea and bloatedness and heartburn, if they think that's the case, then the first thing to do is just to use a digestive enzyme at every meal. And if that improves, then that's a sign that the digestive health needs to be shifted and they definitely have more control over the situation if the digestive enzyme helps. If it doesn't help, then that's a sign that they need to go and have it checked by an expert to see what the challenge could be. And I really encourage somebody who's had a gut challenges for a very long time to do that. And then when they know what it is, then they can work from there. Unless they go to a functional practitioner, they may just be given antibiotics and told, oh, we'll swallow a probiotic. You know, they won't be talking about how to change the diet, which is fundamentally what needs to be as we come back to the foundation. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. So if someone were to look at their diet today and turn around and go, okay, I need to make a change. If, you know, lots of pasta, lots of donuts and lots of these really refined carbs, what would your advice be to, instead of just go straight into all the healthy foods and ticking the checkbox that we're going to have available later, what would you say to someone about starting small and making incremental changes so that it can be more of a, a long-term and something people can stick to? This is a really good question and it really brings to mind the word deprivation because I think a lot of people that have been eating that way with a lot of refined food have interestingly been self-medicating. And when I say that, 
what I'm referring to is something that happens when we eat refined foods. When we eat refined foods, we actually cause a dampening of the stress response because those refined foods cause something in our body to be produced, which are called endogenous opioids. So we're medicating ourselves to feel calmer and to feel soothed by those foods. And we learn that over time. So a lot of people don't realize they're doing that just because it's become a learned response. So you kind of like need to trick yourself into still getting a similar response because the taste's good. They need to find replacements to that food that still taste yummy. And my favorite go-to is a date where the pip has been removed, filled with coconut butter or macadamia nut butter or almond nut butter, put into the freezer, and then dipped into 70% dark chocolate. And it's a fantastic treat. If people don't like that, they can simply take some really crunchy almonds, grind them, a little, grind them up a little bit and mix them with some dark chocolate, stick it in the freezer and eat that, but not at nighttime because that will affect their sleep. But those are just little workarounds that you can do. And funnily enough, vegetables taste really, really good when you make a really good sauce or salad dressing to go with them. And there's a really interesting reason why that's the case, Rachel, and that's simply down to biochemistry and what happens in our mouth. Because flavor molecules disperse optimally in fat, not in water. So when you're eating food and you combine fat with that food, you get a really good blend of those flavor molecules on your mouth and you absorb the flavor much more efficiently versus with water, it doesn't happen. And it's one of the reasons the low-fat diet craze was a huge failure because they had to add so much sugar and additives to the food to make it palatable because they didn't have any fat to allow the flavor molecules to disperse. So when people are making shifts and changes, they need to incorporate really good salad dressings and really good sauces with their veggies so that there isn't a sense of deprivation. But this is a really good question because it leads me to the next point, which is critical in relation to brain health, and that's related to blood glucose. One of the main reasons that people reach for foods to calm them down and help them feel better, even though they don't realize they're doing that, is because they're lacking in energy. When the brain runs out of energy, which it really shouldn't do because there's a very clever system set in place to make sure that it never runs out of energy. But every one of us know that that isn't a fail safe system because every one of us know what it feels like to be hungry. You know, you're hungry, you're irritable, nothing's okay. And you just grab any old thing that comes your way. Your capacity to make good decisions under those circumstances is compromised because brain energy is compromised. So keeping our blood glucose stable with the kind of food that is nutrient dense, has enough fiber in it, has good fat, good carbs with the fiber and good protein means that our blood glucose is stable. When that's the case, we are less inclined to reach for garbage food because we don't have that knee-jerk reaction. And we're not releasing adrenaline, which gets released when our blood glucose has a big plummet because we're now having a stable blood glucose. And then we don't need to feel that feeling of stress reduction from the donut because we're not having that plummeting in adrenaline. So there are quite a few mechanisms at play in this whole process. What happens to most people is 
they just follow an automatic knee-jerk response because they've been doing that for a period of time. So unfortunately, to nudge ourselves in the right direction, we need to plan. And the first thing to do is just do a whole overall of your fridge and your pantry and your freezer. And it's not that hard to do if you know what you're doing. And then you're starting off from a great position because then you're not going to run out of brain energy. You know, the way I, I try to explain it to people is just look at our head. There's no place to store energy here. It runs out of energy. You know, it's like a small place. We know where we store energy on our bodies. We're really good at doing that. But there's no place to store in our brain. So when we run out of blood glucose, it's much easier to reach for that garbage. And there's another thing that I read the other day. It was a small research study, Rachel, but it's quite funny. They did some research to discover how quickly someone reached for something that was bad for them and ate it in relation to how far away it was from their desk. So if it was really close by, they quickly went for it. If it was a little bit further away, they took longer to get up and go and get that. And obviously if it wasn't in the house, they then had to go, oh goodness, I've got to get in the car and go and fetch it. So it may just be one of the ways that we nudge ourselves into a direction of not immediately grabbing that bad, bad thing. So don't keep you know, the, the bad chocolate bars in your drawer. Take them away and put them in a box far away at the furthest end of the garage, you know, or otherwise do something else with them, like throw them away and make sure that you've got good stuff in the fridge that you can go and make mindfully. Because once you start doing that, you just start building a neural pathway. And that neural pathway will become stronger and stronger over time as we practice. But those are some tips for people just to keep in mind. It's a lot easier to make change when you're prepared when you've got all the raw materials around you. Um, nobody starts a recipe when they don't have the ingredients. You know, it's one of the things we need to do. So if we plan for success, we need to make sure we've got all of those things in place. And it doesn't take a lot of time and effort. It just takes a concerted commitment and consistent you know, application. That's awesome. We've covered so many awesome points in this episode. And I just want to wrap it all up. If you could have someone take one thing away from this episode, what would it be? I haven't said the thing that I want them to take away. So I'd love everybody to take away everything, of course. But I think what I want people to take away is that we really have more control over how our brain functions and how it ages than most people understand. And the sophistication and the sensitivity of the brain means that it will try and do all these workarounds for up to two decades before it starts showing symptoms. And that's very sobering thought. So I really want people to start thinking from a preventative perspective because you're actually preventing the degradation of your brain when you start feeding it optimally. Whereas if you don't do that, your brain really battles. And then you battle with mood disorders. You battle with energy. You battle to focus and concentrate. Your memory starts becoming a challenge. Or because your brain is desperately trying to do these workarounds, which it's very good at doing if you have a brain injury or so on, but you don't want it to be doing because it's malnourished. So it's a different perspective about looking you know, towards the brain. And I know that your focus is a lot on mindset on how we can improve our lives by thinking better. And we can only do that really well if we give the brain the foundation that it needs, which boils down to the nutrients. So just take away the idea that this beautiful, sophisticated, sensitive organ really 
you have a lot of power over how it functions and how it ages if you just take that power and apply it optimally. That is a fantastic answer. I love that. So Delia, how can we find out more about you, your work, and where can people go to find out more about you? They can go to my website, Rachel, and it's really simple. It's www.lby.life. And the LBY stands for Lighter, Brighter, You. And I've got a lot of articles on there, which are very long. And people can just look at the conclusion and the summary. And they're all fully referenced. So, you know, it's all based on, on evidence, not based on my opinion. So people can happily go and have a look at that. And then I will, as I said, give you the, the link for the checklist, which is a seven-point checklist to be lighter and brighter. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been really awesome and very informative to talk with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Rachel. Enjoy the rest of your day. So many awesome takeaways from this episode. I think the biggest one for me is that it doesn't matter how much mindset work we do, if we don't give our brain that solid foundation and give it the right nutrients, it's not going to be able to function at its optimal level. Head down to the show notes below to grab a copy of Delia's seven point checklist to feel light and bright starting today, and also to find more information on her website. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to give us a review on your favorite podcast app so more people like you can join us on this journey towards mindset mastery. I can't wait to have your company again next time. Until then, remember, we are only limited by what we believe we are limited to.